Welcome to Healthcare and Hire, a podcast for healthcare professionals and aspiring healthcare executives looking for information, association, and inspiration from higher-level leaders across the healthcare industry. I'm Iqbal Acha, career consultant, healthcare recruiter, and registered pharmacist. Every week, I sit down to interview healthcare executives, clinical leaders, medical entrepreneurs, and industry experts to learn how they got to where they are today, what they see as the future of healthcare, and what they're doing to make healthcare more accessible, affordable, and effective. Let's find out more about today's guest. Dr. David Nicholson is the vertical lead and senior client partner of Health and Life Sciences for Celerity. He helps healthcare organizations develop digitally enabled solutions to improve quality, efficiency, engagement, and effectiveness. Dr. Nicholson brings over 25 years of experience in the behavior change and technology consulting space, developing and delivering business, operational, and IT strategies to both private and public sector clients. He began his career in digital health and behavior change while serving as a Congressional Science Fellow for the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Dr. Nicholson received his Doctor of Psychology and Master's of Science degrees from the Widener University School of Health Professions and his Juris Doctorate from the Widener University Delaware School of Law. More recently, he completed a certification in product development from the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. Hello, Dr. Nicholson, and welcome to the Healthcare and Higher podcast. Pleased to be here. Good to meet you. Good to be here. I'm so excited to have you. You are, I think, like maybe my second uh, doctorate of psychology that's on the show, but you are my first lawyer. So there's going to be a lot of uh, interesting <laughs> conversations about the meld between the two degrees and certainly about your career and the great things that you are doing uh, with Celerity. Let me have you introduce yourself because I know many of my audience members are meeting you for the first time. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your role, and how do you and your team help take healthcare to a higher level? Absolutely. I run the health and life science vertical for Celerity, which is a Ronstadt advisory company. I'm a lawyer and a psychologist by training. I have my undergrad in psychology and work to get both my doctorates together. So I'm particularly fascinated about how people behave and how we put together structures that manage, control, and improve that behavior. So my role at Celerity is I run the health and life science vertical. So I have two roles. One is the senior client partner and a member of the executive team. Um, and the other is the subject matter expert at health and behavior change um, and digital engagement, particularly as it matters in the, in the healthcare space. I do the former so that I can do the latter. I have a, a P&L responsibility so that I have control of the projects that my team and I can work on. Ideally, my goal has always been to make the healthcare system better in some capacity, down to the level of individual care for patients. Um, by managing the ways that we pick and select and attack different projects, I have the ability then to do the kinds of work that I like to do. How do we take it higher? I think it really does go back to care and caring about the individual patient, about the individual provider, about all of the different components that go into that final transaction that ultimately makes somebody feel better, get better, um, or improve their health care or their outlook. When you think about it, you know, behavioral science is a scientific study and application of human behavior principles. Law and regulatory systems and even big complicated systems are generally sets of rules that are designed to make people behave one way or another. When you sort of look at it at that high level and you stop to think about, well, are the assumptions about the kinds of behaviors that this system is supposed to create, are they scientifically valid? If they're not scientifically valid, what is scientifically valid? 
And then taking the next step is, okay, if we do understand how people or systems behave in this way, what are the right ways to create the rules, to create the situations, to create the experiences, the engagement that you need in order to drive the behavior change that's appropriate, um, needed, necessary, and ultimately, we hope, helpful and caring. I I am very fascinated by this, David. It's it's very rare to hear this side of both consulting and business because you know as a healthcare professional, we we very much operate uh, you know within the patient realm, right? And we're always so focused on um, what resources are available for us to help elevate the patient experience and then help them achieve clinical outcomes. Uh, but there is a system behind that that is sometimes based just upon not enough scientific uh, and, and documented evidence. And that's where I appreciate, you know, the work that you do, because you do bring that in into the uh, into your clients' uh, operational uh, forms and, and, and help them design systems that are more based upon solid foundational um, studies. For the listeners today that are wondering more about Celerity, you know, let me kind of share some background about your organization. Uh, I know that the it's a consulting firm. It was started about 20 years ago. It's now part of the Randstad company. Um, and as a consulting firm, it specializes in really change management, operational efficiency, and digital experience. From my research, I understand that Celerity has over 7,000 global consultants, about 500 of them, uh, including you, are based here in the United States. Uh, and in your world, between the health and life sciences, you actually help a lot of major companies as well as startups and everything in the middle, ranging from biotech and pharma companies to medical and um, medical and diagnostic companies, and of course, payers and providers as well. Um, if I also remember correctly, I believe your company won gold in the Horizon Interactive Awards for the work that it did with the Association of American Medical Colleges. Uh, so there's a lot of amazing things, you know, behind the scenes uh, in the way that your company operates. And, and it's not just healthcare, right? I know that you also have footprint with nonprofit associations, fintech, banking, uh, but in your world, it is healthcare, which is one of the reasons why we've invited you to the show and very excited to have you. You know, David, when you think about some of the work that you do with your clients today, like there's a lot of problems that we all face now, right? Like the world is spinning so quickly. There's, uh, you know, between artificial intelligence, machine learning, plus regulatory and, you know, politics, uh, you know, there's healthcare is having to try and shift in order to not just meet the curve, but really stay ahead of it. Um, and I'm sure that there are many clients that you have worked with to be able to redesign their processes, introduce new technologies, and really reassess the way that their employees approach these types of problems with the solutions that you bring. Um, is there a recent example? You don't have to mention the client by per se, but it would be really interesting for the audience and I to learn a little bit about maybe a problem that was brought to you recently by one of your clients and, and some of the work that you had to do and, and what the outcome was of that that's made them and their their, their patients or their clients uh, successful. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, the the core of what we do and probably the core of what I've done across my career is think about how folks can better adapt to change, become faster at using change, become more flexible as change happens around them. Um, and be able to find ways to get better at that. One of the things we know in particular about the healthcare system um, is it's a bit of a laggard in the digital space. Um, if you go back and read Paul Starr's, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning tome about, you know, the social transformation of American medicine, you know, he recognizes, and I think we still see lots of vestiges of the old um, assembly line transactional approach to healthcare delivery. Um, that's been very difficult to change because ultimately you have lives at stake and changing things requires a whole lot of thought. What we do in particular is help organizations, um, payers, providers, all the different groups you talked about, actually learn how to embrace change, whether it's agile, whether it's product, whether it's customer focus, um, whether it's organizational change and adoption. We tackle all of those things either independently or together as a system to help a healthcare system get better, faster, quicker at being able to respond to the kinds of activities that they see happening in either their organization, that they see in their provider base, that they see in their patient base, that they see with their ultimate end customer or something unforeseen in the marketplace. So here's an example. Um, a large healthcare system in the Midwest um, realized um, in response to COVID um, that they had a problem with their 
intranet tool. Um, so the problem that they experienced is, you know, everything got upset um, when COVID happened. Healthcare systems had to undertake probably you know, eight years worth of change in eight weeks. That was enormously challenging, completely rethinking the business model to move to the virtual kinds of solutions that they had to. Realizing that they were putting over 30,000 employees basically out of the office trying to work remote, they realized that the old version of an intranet that they had, which like many legacy organizations is just a file cabinet, um, was not going to support the kind of remote work that they needed. And so this dramatic event that happened from the outside that no one foresaw um, created an enormous amount of need. Um, and they did not have the ability to quickly redeploy IT resources and rethink how they were going to create that, um, create a response to that. They struggled, struggled, and struggled. As COVID ended, they realized that this was going to be a significant problem moving forward. And they came to us with an interesting proposition. They said, we want to recreate our intranet, but we don't want it to be a file cabinet. We want to use product thinking. We want to use design thinking. We want to use service design. And we want to use agile principles to create an approach and a process, as well as a platform and a tool that we can regularly revisit the priorities that we have. We can quickly change those priorities around. Um, we can quickly redeploy resources and people in order to be successful um, with whatever comes our way. And COVID was their example. They're like, so if another incident like COVID happens, that sort of black swan incident that no one's anticipated, they can immediately go to this process and this approach and say, you know what, we're going to redeploy all the resources. We're going to redeploy our people. We're going to retackle the problem. And we're going to put other programs and projects on the backlog and come back to them when it's an appropriate time. But this is the most immediate need that creates the most value for the business, for our patients, and for our providers. And we're going to make that shift. And so we came in and helped them pull together their IT teams, their HR teams, their marketing teams, all together um, to put together a tackle, a, a tackle and approach. We delivered product thinking, design thinking, service design thinking, and then the ability for them to adapt and adopt and deploy across the organization with this whole new model. Now they have a new platform um, and a new set of tools and approaches that has them much better positioned for anything that comes in the future, whether it's something small like a market change where someone moves into their market and they have to respond in a particular region, um, or if they have something as dramatic as another COVID, they'll be ready to redeploy, rethink, um, and reassess how they use their resources very quickly and probably end up taking market share and ultimately making happier providers and happier customers. I, I think that's a beautiful example. And I appreciate that, David, because what I hear in this is the fact that you've actually not only helped them structure uh, a, a blueprint or a map for how to be able to address future changes, but essentially what you've been able to do is design a structure for them that they can repeat and copy, you know, just basically edit and uh, copy and, and paste for, for future instances. I'm curious to know, how, how did you help them identify measurables of success? Like what were the things that they said? Because I mean, this is obviously you know, a long-term project for them. And, and, and now that they have it, uh, they'll probably continue to tweak it. But like for the, the short-term duration, when they invited you in, in this calamitous you know, situation, like what were some of the measurables of success that either you, they, or both of you combined uh, determined that this is how we know that we've achieved the goal. And, and maybe it was a duration of time uh, that you were tasked uh, and certainly pressure comes with that. But it would be really fascinating to understand like, you know, obviously COVID changed the world, right? But you all, you and this client had to work swiftly in order to execute change. And then not only did you have to measure that that success, you have to convince their entire, you know, employee-wide base uh, or employee-wide organization to adopt those changes. Uh, and that's a second part question I'm going to ask you in a moment. Yeah, well, it... And, and there, you, you rightfully see that it's all sort of interrelated. And so that's part of the challenge of tackling it is where do you enter a system like that and how do you intervene and how do you measure that you're having an impact on it because you're coming into a system that's already in, in motion and it already is in action. That's, it's a great challenge. Um, the, in this case, one of the things that, that our approach has built into it, um, my team's exceptional. I, I am lucky enough to work with just some outstanding people. Um, is we actually begin our adoption and change management process even at the time that we're beginning to collect initial data. So as we're going in with the initial data conversations to say to stakeholders, hey, how does your work get done? Let us do a business process analysis. Let us understand that. 
we're also already starting to say, well, where are their big problems? Where are their big challenges? What does this create? So for example, again, using this intranet tool, um, we found out that there were a number of clinical groups who were trying to get in and get to best practices or best standards, and they were using it from the mobile device that they would normally use. So someone on the nursing staff, someone on the pharmacy staff going in to make an inquiry where they had to have information that was up to date with compliance, up to date with best practices, up to date with current standards. The existing tool could not provide a capability for them to find that. Um, certainly not in one or two clicks. Um, and even then with multiple clicks, they were having frustrations um, to the point at which I played back a, a, a clip for one of the general counsels at the hospital system where one of the nurses said, yeah, I downloaded the protocol and did what I was supposed to. And then I realized about a half an hour later that that's probably like a nine or 10 month old protocol. And I don't think it's in, in, in compliance. Now, you know, that's a little scary. On the other hand, we can fix that. And so looking at ways, even while we're collecting those, that data and coming up with, okay, well, what are the measures? It could be number of clicks. It could be areas of frustration. It could be um, whether that they're finding exactly the information that we know is most current. Are we surfacing that? And then is it getting used? Um, you know, all the other sort of traditional website sort of statistics, but also then, you know, doing some collection of information about satisfaction um, and what's most important. That. I think at a higher level, one of the things that was most interesting to find anytime we go in and do this is that, you know, when you use product thinking um, and service design thinking, um, you rapidly get down to, to what are the top things that create value and what are the things that we're doing that don't. And so there were 30 or 40 functions in the initial implementation that they had thought were going to be things that we tackled. After we got through talking to a good 60 or 70 different stakeholders around the organization, we identified only five that took care of 80% of the variability. That 80% of the time spent on that site that they wanted, these were the things that they wanted. It was five specific divisions in the organization um, that had overlapping functions. Everything else, they were like, yeah, it's there and I'll go find it, but it, these are the five, the five that I need. We built only for those five and gave them the capability to build for their remaining priorities, but those all went on a backlog. Um, and so one of the things that we found was that the adoption increased, I think, 1,020% in that first <laughs> two weeks when we put the new system in place because people realized we can find what we want, we can find it fast, and we can get out. When we calculated the total number of hours saved based on some of the initial measurements that we used, like I said, some of those OKRs that we were using about time to find, number of clicks, total time spent um, searching, um, we realized that we probably saved them two, two and a half million dollars over the course of a year of operating the new tool um, at the pace at which it was being operated previously. We recognize that the pace picked up, so there's a good chance that there were even some larger efficiency gains. But, you know, the beauty of a, of a solution like that is you come up with those measures, you carry them through, you help everyone get attached to changing those measures and the things that matter to those measures, and then at the end, you have those measures as a way to give back to the client and say, all right, you have these, continue to monitor these, continue to operate with these. Um, you'll see the change. It'll be a change for the business in terms of productivity and pro and um, revenue, which, you know, hey, it's bottom line for any of us. On the other hand, you also know that you have nurses and other clinicians out there who are getting the information. They need the right information. They're taking better care of patients. They're spending less time looking at a device or at an app and they're spending more time with the patient or they're spending more time doing rounds or whatever it is that's important to them as a provider. That means better patient outcomes. And ultimately, we expect that we'll see satisfaction scores, um, NPS scores and otherwise increase at the hospital. Absolutely. Wow, that that's a remarkable example. Uh, and David, I appreciate you sharing that with myself and the audience. I think that that's, that's indicative of the type of work that you do. And I think, you know, not only the the value that you can bring to other organizations, but it's you know, from my from my world, you know, having been a consultant in the past, like if you do a good job for one, uh, they refer you to three or five, right? And so now you're able to not only help other organizations, but you're also able to elevate the industry uh, by helping the entire organization, by the, helping that entire niche or that entire industry move forward in the direction of excellence. So it's remarkable to hear that. Um, I'm going to go back to a point that you brought up earlier, which I thought was indicative of, you know, what I, I also see. And that is when you compare other industries as it relates to adoption of new technology and of, you know, advancing their, their protocols for organizational excellence, 
healthcare is usually like, you know, the the stalwart. They're like, well, let's just see everybody else make the mistakes and and we'll kind of figure it out. And even then, uh, they still wait much longer than where they're at. And, and unfortunately, like because of so many of the guests that we've had on this show and so many colleagues that I have, like it's become handcuffs for clinicians and executives alike for them to try and do the job that they've been hired to do in a, because the the system itself, uh, the resources and the tools are just just twenty years old, thirty years old, right? And and I think that there's there's merit to the understanding of well, you know, we, patient safety comes first. Uh, and patient outcomes are 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 primary, and I get that. Um, but there still has to be this this risk versus benefit, uh, you know, conversation. And I'm curious to know, like, when you have that, like, do you find yourself having to talk to uh, representatives of healthcare organizations, whether they're payers, providers, or anyone else uh, that's part of your thing? Like, do you find that the majority of them lean more heavily towards the risk side? And and how do you help them overcome that, realizing that the benefits are are so much more greater? Yeah, I, I you know, the one of the one of the things I, I regularly say is that I'm I'm one of the rare attorneys who usually says, I don't know, but let's figure it out. I don't say no initially. And I've always thought that, you know, there's much more play in the joints than I think we give credit for. I think um, so much of it is the risk aversiveness of the industry is is related to, you know, one small problem can ultimately escalate into something significant because the system's so complex. If you think yeah. of, you know, a small ripple in the pond creating a wave later on, I do think that that is always a risk. Um, but I think that if you're aware of that and you're constantly monitoring for where you're seeing, you know, things happening at the tertiary parts of your change, I think you can manage it. Um, one of the things that that I've has helped me be successful is the fact that I am an attorney. So I can come in and talk to clinicians and say, I understand clinically what you're trying to accomplish. Um, I understand why you're trying to do it the way that you're doing it um, and what this particular approach or protocol gives you in terms of clinical outcomes and, and benefit. Um, and the fact that because you probably have heuristics in your mind that allow you to move very quickly with this protocol, you're saving time ultimately and, and change requires changing those habits. And that's hard and it takes additional time. On the other hand, I can also talk to, you know, here are the legal and regulatory risks. What they are trying to weigh is this or that. They want to make sure that, you know, there's the, the we're preserving the, the you know, say, Medicare. We're preserving the federal dollar in the appropriate way and that the patient's getting a good outcome. That, if you can functionally get to what that law or regulation is actually trying to facilitate versus getting down to just blind compliance with a number or a percentage or a single statement about what that rule stands for or doesn't stand for makes it much easier to sort of start to marry the two. You're like, okay, so the assumptions over here on the law side or the regulatory side are this risk management. And here are the assumptions and the approaches over on the clinical side. Again, how do you marry those two or look for ways? Um, often you'll find that you're talking about the same things, but you're using very different language. Um, and once you address that language crossover, you recognize, oh, you know what? The lawyers aren't such bad guys. And you know what? The clinicians are not all about just making sure that they, you know, get what's best for their patients at all times. They're willing to be flexible and experiment. Um, and I think that puts, um, I think I've been lucky. I'm in a unique position that I can do that. I can speak to both sides of that house um, and talk about the different pieces that are important to them and also give them tools for weighing them or give them at least a framework. Um, or a set of language tools that they can use to start to negotiate that. Um, and a positive attitude that, about just not just just assuming that there's got to be an answer as opposed to the answer is no. And, you know, we're going to move on. I, I can understand why you are such an asset to, you know, uh, not just your organization, right, but to the the clients that you work with, because because you're able to marry both sides of this coin and, and bring it in language that's comprehensible by both parties. And, and I think that that's a rare gift. So very glad to see what you're doing. And hopefully you'll continue to doing this for many, 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 many years to come, uh, because I know the challenges that exist now and probably right around the corner for healthcare are only going to increase, let alone, you know, even plateau. Um, so that kind of brings me to my next question, David, like, because you have 
a, a fantastic perspective to see all of these different challenges that are facing healthcare organizations of all stripes. You know, you are working with organizations that are trying to be as agile as they can uh, and to achieve organizational excellence. And they're facing all of these like headwinds. You know, what are, how do you see like, in the conversations that you have with other consultants that do the work that you do for for similar clients, um, you know, I'm curious to know, like, what are the conversations that you hear being brought up over and over again that, oh, XYZ client is facing this. Oh, my God. So is our client. Uh, you know, XYZ is, you know, ABC is facing this. Like, this is a, you know, a trend, a pattern. Uh, and it's alarming to you and your colleagues enough to know that if the change is not addressed now, it's going to be very cataclysmic in, in a year or two from now. Is there something that you can share with the audience, my audience today, uh, that will help them kind of be aware of these, you know, this new challenge or this new problem, uh, just so that they can begin their initial research and, and learn maybe strategies to overcome them? I, I think the biggest challenge that we'll see, at least for the next decade, is learning how to embrace and harness change to create value. Not being afraid of change, not being resistant to change, not digging in your heels and saying, you know, I'm a fortune 10. I don't have to change. <laughs> um, at some point, someone's going to hand you your lunch or they're going to find a way to disrupt your business. It's inevitable with the technology gains that we're seeing. So I think recognizing that your role as a leader in an organization is to embrace change and to find the right kinds of tools for change and the right kinds of mindsets for change in your organization is critical. And I think healthcare is really struggling with that because there are so many easy ways, we've already touched on them, for, the, for them to not change. We have legal system, we have regulatory changes, we have all these other things. We, we have ultimately people's lives at stake. We're not going to change. It's working good enough now. Um, there's no reason to go ahead and do anything different. I think those headwinds are huge. But Inevitably, we're continuing to see Amazon. We're continuing to see Google. We're get, continuing to see, you know, payer provider roll-ups where there are a payer a, or a, a, a provider purchases an insurance license and begins to dabble in their own sort of version of risk management. Um, we've seen that, you know, the marketplace for Medicare Advantage um, with that particular cohort is tremendous. And if it's managed well, there is something um, both to be profitable as well as healthcare delivery, good healthcare delivery in the mix of that. What it all is, we don't know, but there's definitely something there. I think being able to understand change, embrace it, recognize that it's a basically something that must be confronted every day. It's yesterday isn't the same as today. Tomorrow's going to be different. What does it mean to have the tools to, to manage and understand that? And ultimately, I think, harness it for value. I do think, um, you know, again, we, we sort of focus on this customer centricity, um, patient provider centricity. We focus on organizational efficiency, so agile stuff. And we also focus then on organizational change and organizational change management. If you think of that as sort of, you know, three rings that all overlap each other and you have sort of this center, value lives at the middle of that in our equation. Because that's where you are actually able to say, what does the patient or the provider need? How can we quickly spin up a version of that that we can test and understand and make better? Once we've done that, then how do we talk to all of the other people that need to change what they're doing in order to adopt what we understand is the most valuable component for that patient or for that provider? Um, once you have that virtuous cycle started and you know how to, to run that virtuous cycle, um, as an organization, you now have the engine, the muscle. You have a, a muscle you can flex to address change in the same way I talked about for that particular hospital system in the Midwest. They have this new muscle, this new capability where they can actually see change coming. They can sit down and have a process for, okay, here's what the change means. Here's where we have resources. Here's how we shift them. Here's the new work plan. Everybody go get back to work. And those of you who need to change, here's how we're going to help you change. Boom. I love that. And I think one of the things that really struck a chord for me right now in this conversation is about like having the right mindset within healthcare. Um, you know, I teach at multiple universities here in the Chicagoland area, particularly pharmacy schools. And I mean, I believe me, everyone needs a solid foundation of, of, of education within their healthcare discipline. And I appreciate every school that does that. 
Um, so whether it was psychology, pharmacy, medicine, nursing, I mean, their their job is to be able to teach the fundamentals and foundations so that these graduates go out and they can practice their specialty. But I find that a lot of times, like especially today with the conversation of artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, you know, all of these tools that are now coming and really doing, in many cases, a better job than certain some clinicians in the past, you know, I find that more of these, more of my colleagues and more of the people that I speak with are purposely putting their heads in the sand. They don't want to look at this. They don't want to discuss it. It's not a threat for them because it's not on their radar. And I think that, you know, having, you know, this conversation between you and I is is hopefully, you know, eye-opening enough for people to just at least take notice and just think, well, I need to do the research so that I understand this and then work with someone like you or, or you know, within your organization to say, how do we prepare for this? Because it's coming. And if we don't actually face it head on, uh, we're just going to get rolled over. And and I think that that's very important for future for healthcare organizations and professionals alike to to take notice for that. David, we've talked a lot about you and Celerity and and the great work that you're doing with the organizations. I'd like to delve a little bit more now into your professional journey and talk a little bit about some of the the unique experiences that you've had and and the decisions that you've made uh, and the support you've had to get you to where you are today. Um, So uh, we already know today that you're the vertical lead and senior client partner at Celerity Consulting. Uh, Prior to this, you served as a vice president of healthcare at a company called Nerdery, which I really enjoyed the, just the name, Uh, but you've held multiple leadership roles and you've had a great opportunity, right? Like I know you were a director of transformation strategy at Publicis Sapient. uh, And then you were also vice president of health and pharma strategy at Amia Inc., And each one of these opportunities and positions provided you new perspectives, new clients, new ways of learning, new ways of adding value. Um, So I'm curious to know, like when this opportunity at Celerity presented itself to you, you know, I'd love to understand a little bit about your mindset at the time when this position became available. How was it presented to you or how did you become aware of it? Um, And what were some of the factors that you had to seriously weigh before you said yes? I'm sure that there were many things that you maybe already had achieved and you were satisfied with that, but something about this opportunity either presented a new challenge um, or maybe you just had to have a conversation with yourself to figure out, is this the right move for me? Well, you know, I, I, I trace back, you know, everything again to the, that, you know, one is the, the study and application of behavior and the other is the understanding and creation of systems that manage it. And, you know, when I was back in um, grad school, I wasn't going to take the traditional path that someone who, who earns the two degrees together would take. Um, I ended up taking a AAAS um, Congressional Science Fellowship, worked on Capitol Hill. That's where I bumped into so much of the digital healthcare work. Um, in the middle 90s, we were working on telehealth and telemedicine for the first time um, and realized there that there was this whole space where we were trying to create systems to change behavior, manage behavior, and help patients that ultimately the technology wasn't the problem. The problem was understanding the clinical systems. The problem was understanding how they could be used. It was understanding, you know, whether some of the objections to that technology were in fact valid um, uh, because there was often a big disconnect between what patients thought about it and what providers thought about it, or even worse, what licensure boards thought about it. The legal and regulatory system had one approach it wanted to take. The patients had a very different approach that they wanted to take. Um, That has continued throughout my career. Um, and, you know, when the opportunity to come to Celerity arose, um, there's something um, unique about the collaboration that we have with uh, our Ronstadt Corporation. So we have the ability to do the work that that is true business consulting in healthcare, the things that we've been talking about here. Any of those things are possible. Um, and, you know, I have an outstanding team of folks from many of the major consulting firms who've come to Celerity for the uh, the opportunity to do something a little more unique and a little more focused on the kinds of healthcare opportunities that I've talked about. But there's also a second piece of that that's really exciting. And it was one of the things that brought me here. Ronstadt is in fact, the largest staffing company in the world, particularly in the United States, Ronstadt Technologies has an enormous reach into um, and an enormous set of technology capabilities amongst the different teams and amongst the different parts of their organization. So the opportunity to put together a complex business solution that has a technology or a data um, or a build component to it, and then to simply be able to reach over to the biggest staffing organization in the world and say, all right, 
I created the solution. I've created a roadmap for developing and delivering it. The client's on board. Now they need someone to help build it. Guys, let's put together a team and let's put on a show. That's beyond exciting. I'll use a, a, a live example. Um, one of the Fortune 10s came to us and said, we are struggling to put the right kinds of customer experience and user in, um, user um, member, user people together to build the kinds of interfaces that we need um, to really serve our B2B customers. Um, could you build us a team of folks that could, at the top of it, have business consultants who actually are leaders in their craft at service design, patient experience, patient research. I have a couple of different PhD level psychologist researchers working for me now who are doing outstanding work, understanding patients, understanding um, B2B exchanges. Um, those folks are running the beginnings of these big teams supporting big business units doing billions and billions of dollars of work and beginning to help them rethink their engagement strategies. At the same time, I'm pulling in members from the Ronstad teams um, from all over the world, Portugal, um, India, um, Romania, all across the country, um, all across the world, um, to build the teams that then create the solutions. So my team researches it, they propose the solution, they work with the client to say, this is the right solution. And then when the client says, all right, let's build it, we say, yep, and we pull together the teams and that it takes to actually build those things. That's mighty sexy. I, I either, most of the time in my career, you've either been on one side where you invent the solution and you throw it over the fence, or you're taking somebody's solution from over the fence and you're having to implement it. And in either case, we all know how that goes. The big consulting company throws something over that's absolutely impossible to build, or the build guys get something and they say, what were these guys thinking? Did anybody ask us why we were going to build it? That, that frustration, which is a place that I have naturally been um, comfortable moving between the development teams and moving between the, the clinical and the, and the, the engagement teams. Um, that's a place where I think there, there aren't too many other places that where you have the ability to really do business consulting at the level that we do it deep in a, in a fortune, you know, 500 anywhere in the space with, you know, top level consultants, but then also be able to say, you know what, and I can actually put together a delivery team that's cost effective and will actually Keep my eye on the delivery so that I promise you what I put you in your roadmap and what you saw in our solution, we're going to build that and that's what we'll deliver. That's incredible. And I, I mean, it's it sounds very, very appealing. And I don't think that too many people have had that opportunity to have resources available and have an entire team, I'll, I'll say an entire team at your disposal, uh, even though there's like still channels to work through, right? But when you are able to see, because when you're working with a client, like you're walking with them lock, in lockstep with their, their journey and to be able to recognize like, hey, you need this and here is within our organization people that can help you with that oh you need that we have people within our organization that can help you with that let me introduce you to them you know the thing that i've learned over the course of time and i hope that you'll agree is like a lot of the things that we do today are very relationship based right you can have the acumen you can have the experience you can have the knowledge uh, but if you're not able to interrelate uh, with other people and understand their pain or try to elevate their pleasure because of a relationship that hasn't been built that's where the struggles are um, so I, it's fascinating to hear you speak about this, David, because I think that this is where most organizations try and stress, you know, coming from a talent acquisition uh, recruitment background, you know, that's the thing that we've, you know, tried to emphasize with candidates all the time, whether potential or current, uh, keep networking. Right. Because networking is where you're able to develop relationships with the right people. It's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of quality. And so if you can build quality relationships, you will be successful today, tomorrow and in the long run as well. Uh, speaking of which, David, you know, one of the things that I've learned over the 30 years of being in practice and doing different things uh, is the fact that, you know, as, as great as my pharmacy education was and my experiences and working and all that, uh, I am not successful. I was not successful just because of who I was and what I went through. I had a lot of people that helped me you know, realize, you know, truths that were very blind to me at that time, uh, that they helped support me when I was being dumb. Uh, they would you know, open doors for me. Uh, they would speak on my behalf when I couldn't be in the room. Uh, and they created opportunities uh, or led me to them. So I, I owe my success in my career to many great giants uh, that have allowed me to be that way. Um, so I always ask my guests, you know, are, is there an individual or two 
that you would owe your success to, maybe early on or mid-career, even today, where you would like to publicly acknowledge them for the investment that they put into you? Who are they and what did they do for you that's helped you become uh, the success that you are today? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, the, you know, the, we all stand on the shoulders of, of giants um, and, and those that are before us and those around us. I, I'm you know never a believer that I know everything or I'm the smartest person in the room. I generally think I'm not. And what I'm good at is connecting the smart people in the room or connecting their ideas. The The person that I think probably had the most impact outside of um, Dr. Carol Williams Nicholson, my wife, but she won't let me talk about her here. So we'll, we'll <laughs> hold off on that one. Um, is um, um, Dr. Russ Newman. Um, Russ Newman was the at that time the executive director for professional practice at the American Psychological Association and was teaching in the graduate program that I was in. Um, he saw the integrative um, mind that I had and encouraged it. He himself was a lawyer psychologist um, and constantly was was answering my questions but also posing questions back to me about well what about this what about that how could we how could we change this is that really how people behave is that really what we know um and he ultimately ended up um chairing my dissertation um which was all about some of it was some very early work at the time in how do people select health insurance um, and what are the factors that they use to make those selections? And all of the things that an economic model would tell you about the way that they would choose it was not what the research actually showed they they selected them from. So, you know, way back before um, even Kahneman and some of those guys um, came up with some of what they've come up with, we were starting to experiment with the concept of, hey, what is perception and reality are two different things, particularly in healthcare where people are making these, these important decisions about care. Um, he encouraged me there. He encouraged me in that dissertation. And then ultimately, when I took the Congressional Science Fellowship and um, was excited about the policy work that I was doing on Capitol Hill, invited me to come back to APA, um, and but in a unique role. I came in where I was able to actually build a business for him. I was My job was to build a digital business for the organization that would raise revenue at the same time that it would help um, our clinicians do their work better. So um, basically, I had the opportunity to be an entrepreneur um, for the organization using everything that I knew. So we created a HIPAA guide for psychologists that we sold electronically. We I learned how to do electronic fulfillment. I learned how to do um, all of the technology that it took to support that kind of e-commerce and website setup. It was a fantastic opportunity to, to do that. At the same time, I was also continuing to do the policy work in telehealth, telemedicine, digital that I was doing. He encouraged that, gave me resources, gave me opportunities. I raised him a bunch of money. Um, it was a lot of fun. And what happened to me then was I understood along the way that much of the marketing that support that I was getting was actually just dismal um, behavioral science and that it was it was awful. And, and it there were these folks who were tasked with this whole industry. And this is not to dig on my marketing because I, I, that's not the intention. It was just clear to me there was more that could be done, particularly with all the kinds of data that was coming from digital. Um, and that was where I realized, you know what, I'm going to take a very different path. And I ultimately ended up um, leaving um, a very cushy nonprofit position in, in um, working for Dr. Newman and said, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm actually going to go try to just be someone who builds technology and systems that makes healthcare better. Um, and I'm going to start by doing that at another nonprofit. And I went to the American Diabetes Association and completely retooled their fundraising um, their e-commerce, all of their electronic systems um, that reached out to their constituencies, to all their fundraisers. And that was the bug. I caught it then. Um, and to this day, I um, credit Dr. Newman um, specifically. Um, he also taught me quite a bit of the social and interactional skills that um, certainly as a young grad student, I was lacking um, and needed. So I think those soft skills that are important for success in this space were really critical. And um, you know, for better or worse, he would would make sure that I understood them, um, tested me on them, and constantly was looking for ways to help me refine them. And I, for that, I'm grateful. I would not be the level of integrative thinker I am today without without Russ. I appreciate you sharing that about because I find it fascinating where the the challenges that Dr. Newman posed to you forced you to go outside of your comfort zone, which is which is standard for most mentor mentees. 
Um, my assumption is, is that when you let him, when you informed him that you were going to join another nonprofit, what was his reaction to that? I think there was a little skepticism of, um, you know, uh, you, you thought maybe you'd stick around here and do a little bit more of what I was doing. Um, you know, that's always, I, I think, a tension with a mentor and a mentee. Um, I certainly have it with some of the, the the students that I'm now working with. And and my wife is a specialist in, in mentoring. And so that's a big part of what she works with. Um, yes, I think he was a little skeptical. And that, you know, that's scary. You know, that you see a you know, fundamental shift in your finances, a fundamental shift in the sorts of responsibilities that you have. Now you're in a commercial space um, or moving towards the commercial space where the those challenges are different and things move at a different pace. And some of the levels of uh, precision that you might expect to have um, are not always part of the equation. Um, learning to balance those things and find compromises that you can live with. Yeah, those were things that I he immediately said, you really, really want to do this? Think about all these things. Um, I to, to this day, I'm beyond grateful that I did it. And it's interesting right now in the broader um, behavioral science community, there is this broad discussion that has emerged in about the last two years, really, I think, in part out of COVID, where there's all of these folks who are saying, well, gee, what if we take our academic skills in behavioral science and we go into the commercial space? And there's a few of us who have been out here for a long time saying, we think it would be wonderful. Let us tell you about what it takes to do that. Let's tell you how. Um, and I think that ultimately business will be better for it as those people continue to emerge, provided they can make the transition into the space. Um, it adds a whole new color, a whole new flavor. Um, and I think the emergence of the internet and data collection at the level that we have it, as well as the, the ability to analyze data at the level we now can, it fundamentally changes that equation. I would be one of your strongest proponents with you uh, for, to have more clinicians enter the commercial space. It's it's the area that I was in, right? You know, going mm -hmm, from mm -hmm. a patient care, patient facing provider role uh, into a corporate role. Um, is there is a transition, obviously, right? But the value that I gained from those seventeen years of working in that space with two Fortune five hundred companies as well, I would never be able to gain to talk about how else I could find that. It's just not possible. Um, so if there are you know psychologists, clinicians of any stripe that are listening to today's episode and are wondering, can I make the jump? Uh, you heard it here right now from Dr. Nicholson. It's absolutely encouraged, and you know he and I would be more than happy to help you in that space. Uh, David, when you think about the next 18 to 24 months from a professional perspective, what's on your horizon? What are you looking to be able to do or achieve? Um, and maybe you've already started this, but you hope to finish it in that 18 or 24 month time frame, or it's just been conversation that you've had since, you know, New Year's, maybe it's been a resolution that you said, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and start. Uh, you haven't started it yet, but you know, it's going to happen. I'd love to, for you to be able to share what is next on your, on your, your goal list. Well, the the our organization has been through a lot of transitions and it's starting to settle down. And so we're starting to see the vertical that I'm operating actually, you know, find its feet. So we have, you know, very specific projects that uh, where we're seeing specializations and learnings emerge. So the kinds of case studies that I think are important to take to, to market, those are beginning to emerge. Um, client relationships are at a level now that we can start to go out to the conferences and talk about what we're doing with them. Um, and get that information out into the the space. Um, I think we're going to continue to do more of that and continue to try to grow. Um, one element that we're hoping to add somewhere in the next six months to a year is a center for um, center of excellence for patient engagement. I have a particular client partner um, working with me now who has a particular affinity um, and understanding of that space. Um, I've also one of the good things about being um, in this world, uh, in, in this space for a long time, um, the gray hairs earned, um, I've got a lot of people who are willing to come work with me now um, and folks who have come followed me or I have been able to recruit from other places in my career. Um, and we're building a team of outstanding folks. So um, what's exciting is that I know what their capabilities are and I know what kinds of things they're interested in. So this center of excellence for patient experience is likely to emerge somewhere over the next um, couple of months where we put together all of what we are learning, all of what we know, um, and beginning to take it out into the space and say, here's, you know, how you would apply all of the things that we know um, to make your organization be better focused, do it faster, do it better, create more value from it, ultimately end up with better, happier patients and better, happier providers. Um, that's probably the next year. The next two years is going to be um, a continued integration with our our 
technology partners. I really am enjoying pulling together both um, business advisory, strategic, along with delivery, and finding the right way to get a mix of resources and, and solutions that can tackle the really big problems. So like I said, we have a Fortune 10 now where we're tackling a pretty significant problem. It's fascinating that we can do it at the scale and scope that we can, um, because that's really what healthcare needs right now. It needs these larger structural solutions, and it needs some of the old gray ladies of healthcare to actually step up and say, we're going to make these changes. Because again, I think until they do, we're going to continue to see interlopers come in and take pieces of market or take pieces of mindshare. You know, you don't log into Amazon now without seeing, you know, their solution right there at the top of your prime page. Um, they, you know, they've made their stumbles, they've made their mistakes, but they're not quitting and they're continuing to find ways to, to come forward and bring something out there. I think being able to help the old gray ladies of healthcare drives bigger structural change by driving value into the system. That's going to be exciting for the next decade. I'm, I, I can't wait. And I think for the first time, I have an organization with the total capability to do that. So as long as I don't screw it up, I think we've got um, a reasonably good chance of at least at least helping a, a good portion of our clients and a good portion of patients. David, it'll be really hard for me to believe that you would screw anything up. So I'm, I'm very excited <laughs> that it's going to move forward. And I really hope that you and I will be able to visit with each other in that 18, 24 month time and, and catch up because I always love to see how guests have been able to fulfill their desires and fulfill their goals. Um, so in, in two years or less, <clears throat> when we get together, uh, first we need to meet, which we will hopefully very soon. Uh, but then after that, when we get together in 2025, we'll be able to catch up on this. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> David, as a team leader, like there are many people that are on your team that you are not just responsible for in terms of their day-to-day -day performance and managing them, but you're also feeding into them, right? You're, you're guiding them, you're helping them become better leaders with their clients and, and the way that they operate. And then you're also in, in, in imbibing information that's valuable for you to be a stronger leader and more effective one as well. Is there a resource that's your go-to when you think about a new team member that joins your team and you says, listen, you're going to be talking to C-suite level executives, vice presidents, directors of all stripes, um, and or you're going to be leading teams at some point, whether you're a project manager or an unofficial capacity or official capacity. Here is where I started my journey, and I'm encouraging you to read this book or follow this particular uh, leadership advisor. Um, or is there some other resource that you have today that you have just been smitten by uh, and that you are sharing left and right with everyone that you speak with about how to become a better leader? Wow. Well, in the in the health space, um, I still send a lot of people back to to Paul Starr's, you know, seminal book, um, you know, the Social Transformation of American Medicine. While it hasn't really, it doesn't capture the last fifty years, I think it puts a foundation under anybody um, about exactly how this system came to be. What are the sorts of key misalignments in terms of financing, in terms of clinical care, in terms of patient needs, provider needs? Um, certainly, those have matured and changed some over the course of the last. 30 to 40 years since that book's been updated. But I do think that that it's a fundamental text for anybody in the space to sort of understand how the system works together. In terms of leadership books, I tend to spend a lot of time pushing folks to um, books about the soft skills. Um, um, so emotional intelligence, I think, and social intelligence are critical for success in this space. You can, as you said quite elegantly earlier, you know, you can be the smartest person in the room, but if you can't communicate, if you can't read a room, if you can't understand how um, power and decisions get made and how people make unconscious decisions at times that they're unaware of, but nonetheless have an enormous impact on the organization of the work, you're not going to be successful. Um, you can be an absolutely brilliant researcher, but if you can't talk about your research in a way that it integrates into what the reality is and what the reality and manage in terms of what change is possible and what change isn't, um, you're really going to struggle. Um, you know, the I was that young idealistic kid coming out of grad school. I mean, I went to Congress and I was going to write a policy that changed the world, right? <laughs> you know, that that I, I had it too. And I thought I was right about everything and and smarter than everyone in the room. And and you know, um, I'm wearing a tie, I'm wearing a suit, I must be a smart guy. Um, the hardest thing I think to learn was that I wasn't, and that in fact, the real strength, and most of the research over time in leadership has shown that most strength 
for a leader comes from giving away authority mm. and having it, but being willing either not to assert it or to give it away and let someone else take that authority and do what they're best at. Um, so I have a number of, of books and monographs that um, I refer my teams to around those kinds of things, because I think that's really important. You know, it's, it's the soft skills and then how you apply them in those kinds of systems that, that makes all the difference. Everything else is, you know, is details. Agreed. I, I just I spoke to a class uh, yesterday at Midwestern University, my alma mater. Uh, that was one of the things that I had to drive home multiple times. Uh, the question came up is, you know, what about my GPA? I said, what about your GPA? Like, oh, isn't that going to make make or break me? I'm like, no, no, you are focusing on the wrong elements here. So the soft skills are are very, very critical. Uh, David, you mentioned this just a few moments ago, like interrelatability is really a key skill set that you are probably, that you prioritize when you think about adding new members to your team. You know, when I speak with hiring managers across the, across the healthcare industry, you know, I'm always trying to help my audience understand, you know, what are the things that a resume won't carry or a CV won't carry that need to be demonstrated in a conversation? So maybe, David, you're at a conference uh, and you just happen to be introduced to somebody and you're having this conversation with this young lady, young man, uh, and you are like, wow, this person has has something that we need to bring in into our organization. Whether it's with my team or somebody else, it doesn't matter. Uh, this person has a huge amount of potential and they're demonstrating this. What are three things or three qualities that you look for in people to determine if this person has worth or you know a, a potential of being a member of your organization? I think the first is just an absolute... Um intellectual curiosity. You know, I mean, a desire to know about anything and everything and how it works and a humility about that, that understanding to say, I, you know, I don't have a clue, but I'd love to learn or can you teach me? Um, and, and a curiosity about any question um, and uh, a little bit of fearlessness around that question. Um, but, but ultimately, it still comes down to just curiosity in its most fundamental way. Um, I think the second thing would be flexibility. So, the, the ability to be curious um, and to, to the right way, which is pejorative, I know, but the, in my mind, the right way to be curious um, is to be able to move between different points of view easily because you have to in order to understand complex systems. Because, you know, whether it's, you know, um, the seven samurai or whatever it is that you're sort of thinking about in terms of the, the different ways that people see things, you have to be able to fundamentally understand that and move quickly between it. Um, and be able to talk about it, relate to it, and understand how those two things or more more multiple viewpoints might. So that flexibility is critical. Um, flexibility in in the project or flexibility in what happens with um, the approach. Um, you know, yes, there is a. You know, I I tell my teams I am not PMO certified, guys, and there's our PMI certified, and there's a reason I'm not. I, that's not my thing. I'm not good at that kind of project management, but I know what needs to happen, and I understand the concepts and the approaches that we need to take. If I can pair with somebody who has those skills, I know they will make me 10 times better than I am. So I want you to be curious. I want you to be flexible. And the last one is you sure as hell better be able to laugh. You better have a really good sense of humor because <laughs> we work at some incredibly complex stuff. We work a whole lot of hours at it. Um, you better have fun. Um, it's really important to me that everybody on my team has a you know, is at least positive enough that they can laugh at some of themselves. They can laugh at others. They aren't demeaning to others, but they can laugh with and about it. They can laugh with and about, you know, clients and client situations in appropriate ways. Um, we just work too hard to not also have a heck of a lot of fun. So to me, it really is. It's that curiosity. It's that flexibility. And it's a strong sense of humor. Um, I think they're all related in terms of being able to move between perspectives. Um, but to me, that's critical. I, I find the last one unique because I think it's important, especially again for, for the healthcare professionals today. So many of them are so, you know, rigid in the way that they approach problems or patients because there's a protocol, right? That, that's our training. Our training is, you know, identify these symptoms and, you know, option, you know, first line treatment is this, second line treatment is that. And so we become very regimented. And if it doesn't fall into those buckets, uh, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but having a strong sense of humor is critical, and it's it's not as common as I'd like to believe, um, and unfortunately. But you know, 
there's that line where you are able to say, look, let's just, you know, take, let's, let's make light of this. It, it, it's important to be able to step back and just approach this from a, a, a different perspective. And I think that that comes with maturity. So and not to say that, you know, young people can't, um, but sometimes I, I worry not about the, the sense of humor, but um, I find that the flexibility aspect of what I see in this new generation sometimes needs a little bit of maturation. Um, I've, I've personally experienced in the last uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, employees uh, and, and, and healthcare professionals, and as well as executives uh, that have said, listen, that's not my job. Like, it's everyone's job. It's my job. I don't do IT. I don't have an IT background, uh, but I need to learn this applicant tracking system or I need to learn this HRIS and uh, I need to play with it because it's my job. Uh, it's not my job description, but that's what I'm going to do. Um, so I, I appreciate you bringing that to the forefront uh, as well. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the great things that you do at Celerity, the great work that Celerity is doing with its client partners, um, your professional journey and, and advice for listeners. If there's something that we haven't talked about yet that you think is you know, highly valuable for the listeners today or a piece of advice that you would share to anyone listening to today's episode, you know, I'd love for you to have this opportunity to do that now. Is What, what else would you like the world to know uh, that you think is, if nothing else, if they take away nothing else from our, the hour that we spent together, that they remember this and they either apply it um, or continue doing it? Well, you know, the, the, the thing that I come back to often with my teams and in, 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 especially with the new folks who are coming on who might not have had healthcare experience um, is, you know, a psychological concept, the diffusion of responsibility. So it comes out of social psych. It's also applied in some cases more general psych. Um, and always keep that in mind. The bigger the system is, the more people involved in the system the harder it will be to find anybody who believes they're actually responsible for anything that happens in that system. And in those cases, then systems become self-governing or they become um, governed by all the unconscious um, things that are driving the, the, the system around it. Um, that means that healthcare um, will make no sense at, at times. You will be in there thinking, well, this is what's best for the patient, but it's obviously not what's happening. Dr. Nicholson, why is that? Well, there's a financial incentive or there's another structural barrier that's preventing that kind of care from happening, even though it seems logical. Everyone in the system agrees that it could never be like that. And so it won't. doesn't mean we can't challenge it, but it's very easy for everyone in the system to do, as you said. Um, and I think we're seeing that. Um, I think it's easy for us to get in our bubbles, particularly with social media and some of the tools around us now, um, that we don't actually understand some of the challenges to our own worldview um, and it makes it easy to stay comfortably inside that space and think that you're you're absolutely right um, or more right than the other guy. Um, you really need to think that big systems get so diffuse that no one can actually say that they're responsible for them. And that means then that systems are sometimes spinning out of control for reasons that we don't necessarily even consciously understand or measure. And when, if you keep that in mind, then some of the insanity or mis misalignment or or other things that you will find when you're working in a big system like healthcare will start to make sense, or at least it's a place to hang your hat and say, all right, there's something else happening here. Um, someone is not taking responsibility or the system wasn't built for anyone to take responsibility. How are we going to change that? Um, and how can we come in and assert some authority to, to change it? Because again, I'm my personal focus is on change and betterment and, and driving care better and, and making care systems better for patients and providers. And if That's that means right. I have to find somebody who has authority or come in and assert enough so that someone gets angry enough to shake up the system, then that's what we do. And, and I think that that's a, a thing that, that really gets lost sometimes. We forget that big systems just take off on their own once they get running. And we really um, have to consciously stop and think, well, why is it working this way? And could we change it? Um, and, and if so, how? That's fantastic. Um, I don't, again, I've never had a guest be as transparent uh, about that perspective. And and I think it's very refreshing, to be honest with you. Um, I think that a lot of times people just implicitly trust that, you know, the powers that be, the systems that exist today, uh, they've all been vetted uh, and that everything, all the kinks have been worked out, all the bugs have been fixed. And in reality, it's not. Um, and that's where sometimes, as, as you pointed out, you either find the person with authority or you exert your own in order to be able to make meaningful change. 
David, Dr. Nicholson, I, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your personal and professional journey. Uh, I am very excited to, to meet with you very soon in person uh, and very excited to see you continue to take healthcare to a higher level. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, the opportunity to meet you, learn a little bit more about you. And yes, I look forward also to finding a time where we connect live. And um, I hope we're off to a, a future sets of conversations about this and other things. Thanks for joining me on this episode of the Healthcare and Hire podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow and subscribe for more. I'm your host, Iqbal Acha, and I invite you to connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Let me know what you thought about this episode or my show in general. Also, visit me at www.achainternational.com to learn more about how I help healthcare professionals and healthcare leaders advance their career, build a better brand, and create a leadership legacy. I'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, let's keep working to take healthcare to a higher level.